Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations, how to overcome our own tribalisms, and getting more comfortable with the fact that we are really, really different. If you're a fan of the podcast, please do tell your friends, rate, review, and share. And we'd also love your guest suggestions, which you can send to me directly on Twitter at at Theos Elizabeth or at sacred underscore podcast. In today's episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with David Allen Green. David is a lawyer and legal commentator, a former legal correspondent for the New Statesman and a contributing editor at the Financial Times. He led the defence at the Twitter joke trial in 2012 and is now primarily known for his commentary on the legal complexity surrounding Brexit. We spoke about why he went into law after initially pursuing history, how he thinks about the responsibility of his massive Twitter following and not liking upsetting his religious friends by arguing about belief. I hope you enjoy listening. David, thank you so much uh, for coming to talk to me today. And I'm going to kick off with the big meaty question um, that sort of is a thread uh, through these conversations, which is about what I would call your sacred values. And some people don't love that term. So other people have reframed it as kind of deep principles that they try and live by or uh, values in their lives that when they're pressed on or they're compromised, you feel that strong, instinctive, negative response and you might defend those very vociferously. Do you have an idea what yours might be? Yeah, well, at the risk of this being the shortest ever podcast, I don't have sacred values and I don't really genuinely understand what is meant by the word sacred. But yes, uh, I'm a liberal internationalist. I believe in absolute rights. I believe in an absolute right to life. I believe in an absolute right not to be tortured. I also believe in a whole range of other fundamental rights, uh, some of which can be qualified in certain circumstances uh, when there's you know, an exception and the greater good and all that sort of stuff. But that's fairly bog standard liberal internationalism. Uh, in respect of an articulation of that position, just look at something like European Convention on Human Rights or the UN Charter. And that's as probably as far as I can go towards uh, what you would call sacred rights and what I would just call sort of absolute uh, human rights. Great. I'd love to hear um, if you don't mind a bit more about where you think those rights come from or where we can ground them or if they are, um, one of the previous interviews has talked about uh, Wittgenstein's quote about at some point with with values, we reach bedrock and we have to stop digging. You know, they're just, they just are, they are prior to everything else. I think that latter position is more or less mine. I think at a certain point, if you keep on saying, oh, but what is that based on? Then you can always ask, what is that based on? Oh, my religion's based on a sacred text. Okay, what is the authority of that book based on? And it just becomes infinite. Uh, so when you're talking about absolute rights, I think uh, there is no circumstance at all where it is right to torture somebody. I think that is foundational. I can't see how you can really articulate that in terms of anything else. I think uh, it's, it's a bit of a fallacy as you think so. Uh, less less obvious is you know, what is the basis on which you can actually interfere with rights, and that is sometimes a little bit more tricky. So if you believe in a right to privacy or a right to free speech or whatever, uh, those aren't absolute. So in what circumstances can you intervene those? And I think in those terms, yeah, it has to be on a, a fairly human basis. Sounds like you believe in objective right and wrong. Uh, no, I believe in object absolute values. Uh, right and wrong sometimes can be absolute, sometimes can be relative. Um, 
talk to me about uh, what led you to go into the law. It sounds like this sense of rights has been a deep principle. Did that was that uh, previous to you going to study and work in law, or did your experience in law help shame that as one of your deep values? Uh, I did history at university, and I wanted to be a historian. I still do. Uh, I was going to do postgraduate work in 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 what's called fairly potentially intellectual history, and I was going to go to do stuff on 20th century and 19th century political thought. That fell through for one reason or another, and I was stuck there in my mid-20s thinking, what do I do? And I happened to read an article about a legal case where it mattered whether something or other was part of the state or not. And I enjoyed reading about that, and I thought, oh, law seems interesting. And the great thing about law is that it is a practical subject. In fact, I, 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 I would hold the view that it's hardly an academic subject at all. Law comes together in its practice. So, for example, if you can read music, you can sort of create music in your head by reading the notation. But it only really comes alive in its performance. And by analogy, law comes alive when you've got a practical problem to try and solve, a thing to advise on. Uh, until fairly recently, uh, many senior lawyers, indeed judges, and indeed a law lord until about 20 years ago, didn't even have a law degree. It was treated as an academic subject. You had your pupillage or your articles just like having an apprenticeship. And that attracted me to law, the need to practically understand situations in an intellectually rigorous way. Do you think there are commonalities between law and history? There is for a litigator. Uh, history is, for one degree, which perhaps more than any others, teaches you how to assess documentary evidence. And litigation often comes down to your ability to assess evidence. And I think history is a very good degree for somebody who is a litigator. And you sound like you still want to be a historian. What are you going to write your great history of? Oh, that's... <laughs> I still want to do the work book one day on George Orwell, but that's about three or four books down the road. Uh, but one thing which has increasingly interested me recently is very, very early history, when human beings are beginning to articulate things. Uh, so the origins of law, the origins of government, uh, how we went from a system of essentially a face-to-face -face form of community where the strongest individual had power, uh, had dominance, uh, which you would still see in, most, in many animal species at the moment, to one where you deferred to somebody or something, not because they were more powerful in your face or had more power in the group, like, say, a silverback gorilla, but because they were king or they were queen or that the law said so. And how humans changed from having uh, this sort of face-to-face -face aggression, submission, dominance sort of arrangement, behaviour, which almost all animals have, to one where people regulated their life by abstract terms like kingship and lordship and laws, uh, I find fascinating. And that's also a reason why I think early religion is fascinating, because I see early religion as an attempt by human beings to understand abstractions. One um, commentator that I've been reading would argue that uh, key moments in religious development, particularly the moment um, around Jesus's teaching, around the limitations of power, uh, around that quite subversive message of 
the last and the least um, and, and questioning arbitrary authority and um, value residing with money and power was really key in that trajectory. Is, something that, is that something that you see? I find Jesus generally a, a fascinating figure. And I am a small A atheist. I'm not a big A atheist. I disbelieve in gods. I don't disbelieve in any particular god any more than another. But I've got an encyclopedia which lists thousands of gods which have been known about. And I disbelieve in all of them. I don't pick any of them out saying, no, that's the one I really disbelieve in. Uh, so I would approach Jesus as, as, as a secularist would do. And even on those terms, he's a, a fascinating human being. And his, his message I, I, it, it is compelling. There is a lot there, and it's impossible not to be moved by that. I I find it tricky sometimes when, um, as you know, I have a, a big soft spot for atheists and have had incredibly fruitful conversations here and elsewhere with them, but I find it very difficult when they do try to kind of write off the figure of Jesus, and particularly when the argument is made, he probably never existed and it's all um, it's all made up. What? Why do you think he does retain this power, even for those who might not think he's God? I think the important thing with understanding the historical Jesus is is to try and understand the extent to which he wasn't exceptional. And when I was at university, I happened upon some books by the scholar Geja Vermez, who uh, explained how Jesus fitted in very much within a first century Jewish context, and that in many ways he was a Jewish uh, itinerant preacher who was trying to get Jews to be better Jews. And then you had transformations in his message after his after his death. Uh, and once you understand almost everything within a context which normalises it, you don't have to go to the extent of somehow coming out with some grand conspiracy theory. Because what are you trying to explain? If you're trying to explain how later generations posited certain things upon this uh, character of Jesus, then you explain what happened after his death. But if you're just trying to explain him in terms of his own life... There's almost nothing there, in the, in, as far as we can tell, which needs such elaborate conspiracy theories. I um, would obviously disagree with you, but I'm going to do the thing which I try to do on this podcast, which is not make it into a debate, but just continue to um, try and understand a bit more about you and where you come from. Uh, so did uh, at what point in your life did you realise you were an, athe- an atheist and where did that come from? Did you have a different position previously? And what's that journey been? Well, I was, I've not been christened, so I was never brought up particularly to be religious. My first two names, uh, David Allen, uh, because I was actually named after the Irish comedian Dave Allen, uh, which I'm quite glad about because the other favourite comedian of my mother's in March 1971 was Jasper Carrot. And I think Dave Allen actually are better first two names than the alternative. Uh, Not brought up to be particularly religious. Uh, Went to university... Uh, went through a phase where I thought I was religious for a little bit and ended up in all sorts of places, which I thought, no, this really doesn't ring true for me. Uh, talked, talked with some very patient religious friends of mine where we worked out what we each believed and where our differences were. Read. A uh, few books which were quite influential were Robin Lane Fox's Unauthorised Version, which allowed me to understand how parts of the New Testament and Old Testament could be explained in historical terms. Uh, Geja Vermez, who I mentioned. Uh, and then in respect of natural religion as opposed to revealed religion, I 
read David Hume and I just thought, yes, that's more or less all I need to read on that. And so I came to the view that there was nothing in respect of natural religion which needed or required any sort of supernatural explanation. And there was nothing in respect of revealed religion which needed any supernatural explanation. And as I wasn't looking for those explanations anyway, I felt no need to. And then I realised that I actually quite like Christianity. I quite like a great deal of what Christianity has achieved. I love ch going into churches as long as there's not too many worshippers about. It's absolutely wonderful stuff. But I like it from the outside, just like Churchill said about the Church of England. He was a bit of a butcheress. I have no reason, I have no wish to try and discredit Christianity. I don't want to persuade anybody. Uh, I'm not a proselytizer. If somebody wants to know why I'm an atheist, I'll explain. If you want to explain to me why you're a Christian, I will listen. And if I don't understand something, I will ask. But I see absolutely no point in me trying to argue or debate about religious questions with people. It seems a futile exercise. I feel like we need to go for a beer another time to talk more about that. But that's very helpful for understanding because you, um, for understanding why you haven't felt the need to kind of in get engaged in those public ding-dongs. Where do you think we are in terms of public debates, particularly around religion? Uh, in, ter in terms of, are, are we doing better or worse at it than we were a few years ago? How would you define us? Well, I happen to have this huge Twitter following, which I genuinely can't explain why. I, can, I know how it's happened, but I don't know why it's happened and why they followed me as opposed to somebody else. I, just, I sometimes feel like, like for Brian, it just seems odd that I've got all these people following me and I sort of explain it to myself by thinking that most of them must be porn bot accounts. Uh, and then I've... I did tweet about religion. I used to, I blogged about religion. And then two or three things happened. First of all, some friends of mine who are religious felt, felt it awkward and uncomfortable. And one or two of them might be listening to this. And just let me tell you, it wasn't just you. There were a number of my religious friends who just thought, well, that made us feel a little bit awkward. That, missed, that was a bit robust. And I thought, I'm not here to do that. Uh, I've got things to contribute in law and policy. I've got not particularly interested in religious questions why should i upset people needlessly and then i realized also that public debate on religion is incredibly dull it's chorus and refrain i say x you say y it's like knowing endless amounts of chess openings it's just entirely dull and i can't be bothered with some smirking person coming with for the millionth time what their counterpoint is being an atheist is uh, and so i just don't bother with that so, no, on religious questions per se, I will not contribute to religious debate, public debate. Where I will make a stand is attempts on a religious basis to influence public policy and lawmaking. And then I will do. I think I'm strongly against any uh, attempt to affect public policy or law on religious grounds. But I, that is very much in a sort of case specific, I do not want to have this law changed for that reason. Presumably you're not against religious citizens attempting to engage in democratic debate. Of course not. Uh, what I will do is, say for example, abortion law, just to take a completely non-controversial Yeah, example. just a little one. Yeah. There are arguments for and against abortion, which are in human terms, in almost humanistic terms. If you identify uh, the fetus as a human being, then you've got a perfectly arguable humanist case against abortion. You've just got a wider view of what humans are than somebody else. But to actually ban it because X was said in some text some text which uh, you ascribe religious authority to, 
no, I, I find that is not a permissible reason to try and regulate somebody else's life. I'm interested because I feel like when I look at the abortion debate, I'm not sure the latter thing that you've talked about is necessarily happening. It feels, and obviously what we're often trying to do is, is work out what is public reason? What is uh, the kind of language which we can all understand each other in, but which doesn't require us to kind of flatten out or hide or um, dull our commitments, our, our moral perspectives, our viewpoints, which we all bring when we come into the public square. And it feels like, although the abortion debate is deeply painful, most people of goodwill are trying to argue in ways that the other person understands. I don't hear very many people saying abortion is wrong because ex in viticus, because as we know, actually, the Bible is, doesn't really mention abortion in explicit terms. It talks about the broader principles. Um, so part of me is worried that when we think about religion in public life, we assume that religious people are doing things that they often actually aren't doing. I don't think religious people act as a sort of homogenous group. In fact, I would, Fair enough, I've, not seen I it, I've not seen any evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, and my own city, as your, your listeners can hear, I'm, 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 I'm from the city of Birmingham. Uh, in the 19th century, there were wonderful progressive political movements aided by the Quakers and the nonconformists who took on very different views to, to uh, established religion on almost every political question. Uh, and so the fact that somebody is religious and they've taken a view on a religious question, is, is obviously that's, it, there's no problem with that. But what I do object to is the mu- reason for the policy change or the legal change being a religious reason. And if it does rely on just a religious reason, like, for example, you mentioned abortion in Leviticus, but obviously homosexuality, there is something a little bit more explicit against it. Uh, again, I would object to that. But also in more subtle things, like I find it objectionable that you are required, before you give evidence in a court uh, on a criminal trial, to show the decision maker, the jury or the judge, whether you're a Christian or not by whether you are agreeing to take an oath or not. And that's the first thing they know about you. And I just wonder why, why is that there? What, why should my view on whether I would take an oath uh, on, on the Bible be the first thing a tribunal needs to know about me in assessing the validity of my evidence? That's a fair question. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that, that Twitter following that you've mentioned and. And which relates to that question about our public profile and how much people know about us. How, well, let's wind back. How did you, how did you come to have that level of public influence as a commentator? Not every lawyer with an expertise um, in public policy uh, is in your position. Uh, I got no good explanation for that. Uh, the, way, the way it's happened is quite simple. I, over time, gain more followers than I lose. I lose dozens and dozens of followers every day. It's quite heartbreaking sometimes, but for some reason I get more every day. So it just keeps edging up in the in, in the right direction. You started blogging, right, and doing journalism. Well, it, it started... So did it start with Twitter? No, it started... With, I had a blog called Jack of Kent, which I've recently sort of terminated. Uh, about 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was actually quite difficult to broadcast or publish to the world. You could write a book and self-publish it, vanity publishing. You could get a, a ship and go into the English Channel and do a pirate radio station. You could, But unless you went through one of some sort of gatekeeper, it really was difficult to publish and broadcast to the world. 
and I always wanted to to write. It's it's something I enjoy doing. I enjoy writing instead of speaking. It's putting words on the page, typing them in the order. Wonderful thing to do. But I'd never got into journalism, uh, and it was too late. And it was quite difficult to get into journalism. Uh, and then the internet came along. I mean, the internet came along in a way which made it accessible to to people. So I started a blog. Right in the early days, in the days where you actually had to blog in HTML code. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is great. So I blogged, I did some opera reviews, which, if you can find them, are some of the very worst writing on the internet. Seriously. Uh, and then a friend of mine, helpfully, got sued. Uh, his name was Simon Singh, and he was sued by some alternative health practitioners, chiropractors. I remember. And... Suddenly, people wanted to know why he was being sued. Why couldn't understand it? How could chiropractic sue? Because it's only an idea. And I, I happen to be a, a defamation lawyer, amongst other things. And so I just started writing about it, uh, explaining why, how it worked, uh, how the law operated, what was meant at each stage. It helped mobilise support for, for, for Simon. And then in my mid to late 30s, for the first time in my life, I realised I was actually quite good at something I enjoyed, as opposed to enjoying things which I wasn't very good at, or or being good at things like being private practice lawyer, which I didn't particularly enjoy. And I enjoy writing for the screen. Fascinating way to write, because it's so different from writing textbooks. It's so different from writing articles. You know, it's an interesting question for you is, you know, which of the apostles and which of the letter writers would have preferred blogging or tweeting as a medium as opposed to writing letters? It's a wonderful way to communicate. And obviously the apostles and, and the letter writers would have loved to hyperlink to those parts of the Old Testament rather than leaving it to you to try and speculate which parts they're referring to or alluding to. And I just liked as a law blogger being able to link to my sources. It's like a form of pamphleteering. And I was quite good at it. And then other cases came along and then the New Statesman asked me to blog for them. And then from the New Statesman, I was asked to write for Financial Times, where I now have the wonderful and almost meaningless title of contributing editor, uh, which is really quite good for trying to impress people unless they actually ask me what it means. Uh, and this Twitter thing has just followed. And... I'm doing. I'm writing a lot about uh, this thing, which some of your listeners may have heard of, called Brexit, which nah. may or may not be over by the time this podcast is is, is broadcast. Oh, I hope so. Uh, so we can see where you know how useful, how efficacy the power of prayer is uh, between <laughs> now and then, really. Uh, and Brexit is just a really good subject for me because I know about all the almost all the areas of law: commercial law, EU law, public law, trade law. I'm a former government lawyer. Indeed, I'm on the same road as 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 as, as your think tank. Uh, and so, when all everybody was gnashing their teeth uh, when the referendum result came out, I was going, "This is excellent. This is such a complex area. It's a mess." And I love writing about messes. If you want a black letter law blogger, there are some in really good ones out What's there. What's a black letter law Somebody blogger? who just writes about what the law is. Right. Explains what the law is in a black letter way. What does black letter uh, mean? Just as it's typed. Right. Uh, I'm not, I love situations like the Simonson case, like the Twitter joke trial, which I dealt with, like some of the Leveson related stuff, 
where you do not know how it's going to turn out. That fascinates me. And the great thing about Brexit is that nobody knows how it's going to turn out. And how do you... And it's all down into contingencies. Mm. And looking at Christian history, for example, looking back, there's a certain inevitability of uh, first century, then you've got the early fathers, and then you've got Constantine, and then you've got everything else. It all looks really teleological. But at the time, I had no idea how it was going to turn out. And that must have been fascinating, because hindsight is such an intellectually misleading thing. It's Nobody at the moment knows what's going to happen in Brexit. We could, we're in Whitehall at the moment, Westminster. We could w- walk out of this office and go to dozens of civil service offices around here and ask, what's going to happen? And nobody will know. And that is what's brilliant and fun about law and policy blogging. How do you find the experience of being a public figure in that way, both kind of personally and emotionally? Do you feel a sense of moral responsibility around it? Do you find some things difficult? I think if you're not careful, you go mad. There are people who have become quite well known and they've got huge Twitter followings who act like Emperor Ming and send their followers off onto doing pylons to people who have displeased them. I just think, no, it's keep a certain sense of proportion. Yes, you may at the moment have a Twitter following of a certain, but that can come and go. People can just unfollow. Try and remember there's a human aspect to this. So, for example, if you really have a go at somebody on the internet, they are going to get upset. They're human. And so I tend not to have a go at anybody unless they're a senior public figure. Uh, And this sort of humanity is lost because you're typing on a computer screen and you forget there are people on on the other hand. It's almost as if it's a strange way of proving these sort of experiments about whether you talk to somebody if you could just press a button. You you forget the human aspect to it. And as a public figure, which I, I suspect I'm not, I'm as somebody as Jasper Carrot once described a local disc jockey as being world famous in Birmingham, I'm quite well known on legal Twitter. Hurrah! You could go around the temple and ask loads of lawyers who I am and they wouldn't have a clue. And so I'm not really a public figure, I'm just well known on social media. And social media can come and go. CB radio was big once and nobody's on CB radio much anymore. Never so it's ephemeral. So you've got to keep a sense of proportion. And do you uh, find that people being abusive or rude or perhaps you don't get any abuse, like maybe you're the only person on Twitter who doesn't, uh, how do you respond to that kind of, I know legal training can give you quite a thick skin. Are there days where you just think, I don't want this, it's too oh, much? Oh, I, I did. And a few years ago when I was pointed out that, pointed out that Julian Assange was a scoundrel who misled people about his legal situation, which at the time I was just one voice and now is actually the consensus. Uh, I got a huge amount of Twitter abuse and it wasn't terribly pleasant. And so I've taken certain, I do certain things. I, I, I don't broadcast. I don't do TV. I don't do radio. I do the occasional podcast. I try and concentrate on issues. I try and use a sense of humor. Yes, occasionally you still get pylons, uh, but not many. And one reason it isn't is because, for example, I don't, I, I, I don't try and personalize things. And uh, I also have avatars, which are pictures of things. I have currently on, on, on Twitter, I have an avatar, which is from a Shiriko painting. And, and that is my avatar. And when you don't see a human face there, 
it actually makes people less likely to personalize their abuse against you in a, in a weird sort of way. And so usually most of the stuff I get attacked for is, is because I uh, have written something they dislike, not because they've personalized it. But there are people out there who quite, for good reasons, have their own pictures, their avatar. And then people personalize the attacks in that nasty sort of way. And it's unpleasant. That's really challenging for me because I feel like my instinct is the more we can be, um, that public debate suffers when we when we make it too much, uh, I don't want to say too much about just ideas, but when we lose the human element. Mm -hmm. And so therefore one of the things I think is healthy in public debates is when we are our full selves, when we are um, vulnerable when we're vulnerable and, you know, upset when we're upset and open about the fact that we're complex, that we don't just, so for me, that I don't just represent some set of ideas about Christianity, that I am, uh, I'm more complex than that. And when I'm talking to people of different beliefs or different political persuasions. So I'm challenged by the idea that one way to prevent abuse or to be fruitful in public debates is to really narrow down and to almost remove the personal and to, and to stick to the ideas in a way that I instinctively don't know what I think about that. But on, as a law and policy commentator, I would say the problem is that there is not enough concentration on the legal instruments, on what the law says, on what goes beyond your personal response to the law, yet you know, the normative approaches. I want people to concentrate on what the law actually says, what it doesn't say, how we understand how law and policy works. For me, a sense of humour helps, but if I personalise it too much, I think people will be distracted. And I don't think that helps for the sort of things I want to write about. But I wouldn't generalise beyond law and policy and say that's right for writing about religion or writing about other, some other aspect of human affairs. But I think one of the great things about social media and law and policy uh, writing is that it helps people to get in touch with documents and with texts which they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So before about 10 years ago, it would be quite rare for a lay person to go and look at a law, a statute for themselves. I can explain people through Article 50 or through, through some other legal instrument in a, a sort of guided tour on the internet. And I think that's a good thing because law and policy is a different thing to say, say religion or some other aspect of human affairs. So what I'm saying has worked for me is not something I would generalise beyond law and policy. Helpful. Thank you. Um I sort of hesitate to get onto it, but it feels silly not to go there. Um, I'd like to ask about Brexit as someone as, who's very immersed in it, um, who sounds sort of remarkably jovial about it, um, given how much gnashing of teeth there is on both sides. Uh, why do you think it has become this totemic, divisive debate with so much impatience and kind of accusations of bad faith on both sides? When in theory, if we looked at it five years ago, it might have seemed like quite a dry technical law and policy issue? Why has it blown up into seemingly loaded with a huge amount of symbolic value? I think perhaps you as a religious commentator is in a better position to explain the problem you have just outlined than me and as a law and policy one. But one thing I think I would emphasise is how unexpected and sudden it was. Nobody well, very few people were expecting Leave to win the referendum. Very few people were expecting Trump to win the presidential election. 
And when things happen in a predictable, settled way, you have predictable, settled rhetoric, sets of ideas, and so on. And when there is a sudden break and you have something new to have to try and deal with, you haven't got those established norms and values and rhetorical techniques. And what happened with the referendum was I was a profound crisis, not only in politics, but also in political discourse. And you very rapidly had extreme language. And you often see this with genuine, well, genuine revolutions in history as well. In hindsight, there seems to be a pattern of, you know, rise and fall. But at the time, it's scary. People don't know how to articulate things. They haven't got the vocabulary. And, and, and then you get tensions and upsets and whatever. It's hopefully going to settle down over time. But we are in an unexpected situation. Nobody was, no, nobody or very few people was expecting Brexit to happen. And we are now in a situation where nobody knows how or if it's ever going to end. And people don't like those sort of situations. People don't want to have to keep on thinking afresh about politics. They want a nice conventional way. People like boring politics. Constitutional law should be boring. But it isn't. And we are being cursed by living in interesting times. Yes, we are. Um, given that we do all need to live together going forward, um, what have you learnt being part of, uh, in some way, these public debates on these issues about how to, about reconciliation, about how to come to understand other points of view and how to bridge some of those tribal divides? Are there particular voices on the other side from you that you respect, that you learn from, that you are in relationship with? It, well, I'm, I'm in an awkward situation because I am, although many people doubt this, I'm neutral on the ultimate question of whether the UK is a member of the EU or not. I, I do support membership of the EU, uh, single market. I do support membership of a customs union. I do support freedom of movement because I'm an internationalist. But I'm not that fussed about whether we are technically a member of the EU or not. There's a number of ways we could be closely connected. So I'm neutral on that. But my analysis, such as it is, has been taken up almost entirely by Remainers. And so I say something and I'm heavily retreated by, by, by Remainers, uh, which is quite odd because if I ever criticise Remainers, it's how dare you say that? What proof have you got to that by the same sort of people who would happily retreat me when I'm saying something they agree with? Uh, and there are a few of us. They're on, on the Leave side and on the Remain side and in the middle. But most people aren't terribly interested. They want people to agree with them. And so you are going to have problems in the medium to longer term with people moving out of these entrenched positions. Uh, it's almost as if Remain and, Lever, Remain and Lever are going to become sort of political terms in the same way Tories and Whigs became political terms after the 1680s. Uh, one thing I would like to see more of is self-restraint, but you do see pundits on both sides who use the most extreme inflammatory inflammatory language, almost goading people to be more and more aggressive. And this can't end well. I wasn't going to actually vote in the referendum. I, 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 I was pretty placing myself as being neutral and above referendums because I'd loathe referendums. Uh, and then 
the Joe Cox thing happened and the Breaking Point poster happened. And I thought any leave win, which was based on a poster like that, and the atmosphere around the Joe Cox death, I thought this is a bad thing. I cannot just stand aside and, you know, wash my hands of, 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 of it because they're using a referendum and I don't like referendums. Uh, and so I voted Remain almost at the last moment because I didn't want the implications to come true of, of, of a Leave victory. But then it did happen and I realised how gloriously fascinating it will be. But that's very easy for me to say because I'm just sort of looking at it like, uh, like almost in an objective distant, almost unrealistic way. Uh, well, there's a lot of people who, who can't do that. They can't sort of distance themselves from it. And it is incredibly personal. And it still hasn't settled. And I can't see how it is going to settle in the short to medium term. It's going to be something which is going to keep on forcing people to be confrontational. And that's not a good thing. It feels like as a society we need to rediscover some habits and disciplines and virtues is a more emotional intelligence needed for all of us. Mm -hmm. Possibly. Uh, it's certainly people need to realize that words and words have repercussions. And when you have differences of opinion, the important thing is to try and find out what people have in common. I know that sounds trite and saft to use a Birmingham word, but what it means is it's easy to polarize. It ain't difficult. And hopefully people will realise you should not do the easy thing. And I hope we get a rebirth of practical politics uh, soon, rather than this sort of fairly partisan uh, ideological approach to politics, which I'm afraid we're going through a phase of. Feels like good advice for us all. <laughs> David, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast we're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.